All right, well, so good to see all of you, all of those of you that are in the room, as well as those that are watching right now, our live stream. We've been kind of blown away that we, we've got, we average about a thousand people watching online or watching the live stream every week. And, uh, it's, and it's actually around the country and even around the world. We've got pockets of people watching all over the place. So it's cool. That's why we, we keep doing it and glad that you've joined us as well. So it is Palm Sunday weekend, and uh, you might be wondering what is, you know, if you're not, especially if you're not a church person. But honestly, even church people, I was a, you know, I was a, I grew up going to a Lutheran church, and uh, I grew up going to a church, but I, I didn't really get the the Palm Sunday stuff. It was like part of the church calendar, and that was the big deal. And I know my kids always said they didn't get it either, even though there was palm branches. What, what is the deal with the palm branches? I, I would get that question. And in fact, there were certain years, especially with older church folk that had, were around church for a while, they'd, they'd have, if, and if they were in charge of decorating, they'd have palm branches all over in the lobby. And I've been to some church services, never mind, but where they actually had the kids come up from downstairs. The kids came up from their junior church waving palm branches, and it was a cute little thing. What is the deal with the palm branches? Why does that even matter? Or, or here's one thing that some of the older people, that maybe this is something that they did back in the day. They would come up to you and they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And I was never sure what to say. Yes. Yes, blessed is he. I'm not, I'm not sure what to say to that. Now, I get the he is risen, he is risen indeed. That's done, actually done in a lot of countries on Easter Sunday or the Resurrection Sunday. But blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, he is blessed. And, and then there's the, the donkey. What's the deal with a donkey? Why a donkey? Why does a donkey get a kind of a prominent place in this story? So what is this day really about? And I'm not belittling it. I think I'm actually ans- asking some questions that a lot of you have really wondered about. And I think that we're going to find this day is a lot more significant than perhaps what you had realized before. And it really applies to some things that we're going through and some of you right now are wrestling with. So let's get our Bibles out and we're going to look to Mark chapter 11. So grab your Bibles, Mark chapter 11. In fact, even if you're watching at home, go get a Bible and look at this yourself or download a Bible on your phone or you can use our church app. We've got Bibles on our church app, but get a Bible and actually look at this yourself. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we got those blue hardcover Bibles that are in the chairs here. And uh, if you need one at home, we'll send you one. So just let us know. But page 847, on, uh, for if, if you're using one of those blue hardcover Bibles, so Mark chapter 11, we're going to start in verse 1, page 847 in those blue hardcover Bibles. And uh, we also have notes, so make sure you use those notes. It's valuable when you write things down, you retain so much more, and that's why you're here, right? You do want to retain. So let's use those notes as well. And let's pray. Father, this is your word. We believe it is true. We receive what it says. In the name of Jesus, open our hearts and engage our minds. Amen. All right, so as we're getting into this Mark 11 passage, Jesus is on this road between Jericho and Jerusalem. And it's a, it's a road that he's walked, a pathway that he's been on many times. Every time he would go to Jerusalem, it would have been this direction, We would always pass by Jericho, which was also another significant city. Actually, you can even walk this road today. It's the same road, same pathway, same pathways available. If you go to Israel, you could actually walk this pathway and go from what was Jericho to Jerusalem, even today. Now, Jerusalem 
itself was a, it was a major city, about 30,000 people, which was a huge city in the ancient world. But now Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on what is going to be Passover. And that weekend saw a million people that inundated the city. So, you're, I mean, you're a town of 30,000, can you imagine that? A town of 30,000 being able to somehow house a million people. Well, it wasn't just that they, I mean, and obviously there weren't enough houses for them to all sleep in. So what did they do? Well, they camped. They brought their tents. They slept not just in the city, but for the most part, it would have been outside in the outskirts of the city. And so the Garden of Gethsemane and the Mount of Olives and all of that, those familiar places that we can go to even today, those were some wide open spaces and people would literally camp out. There'd be families. This was a family reunion time for a lot of people. Passover was a huge deal. Kids would be playing, cousins, good to see their cousins again. Some of them hadn't seen each other in a while. So it's a huge time of celebration, family gathering, and this is what Jesus is coming into when he's coming into Jerusalem. So we look at verse 1, and we read, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, Bethphage, Bethany, this is just on the, on the eastern portion of the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is east of Jerusalem. And it's a beautiful area. In fact, there's a, we know it's a beautiful spot that Jesus loved this. You oversee. This is from the Mount of Olives. In fact, there's olive trees all over the Mount of Olives even today. And in fact, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there are olive trees that were alive when Jesus was there, that are still, that are still there. So that you can oversee the city from this beautiful spot. We know it's one of Jesus' favorite spots. He would go there often. So this is where he is at, and this is when he gives these instructions. So now we're, we're actually in our own Bibles. If you continue on in verse 1, it says, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. So this is where the donkey comes in. And Mark doesn't say it this way, but this is what the other writers, uh, and we'll see it in a little bit as well, but this is where the donkey fits. Why a donkey? In fact, it's not just a donkey. It's a little donkey. It's a colt donkey. A donkey that's never been ridden on. I mean, Jesus could have gotten a horse. If he wanted to get a horse, I mean, he could have gotten a horse. He was a very popular figure, one of the most well-known people in all of Israel, maybe the most well-known at this point. If he wanted a horse, he could have gotten a horse. Why does he ask for a donkey? I mean, you think about it. Jesus could have done whatever he wanted to go into the city. He could have made a Rolls Royce appear and gotten into that, been like a TV preacher, you know, showing up in town, flashing all of his rings and everything and getting out of that Rolls Royce. That's, he could have done that, but he chose not to. And and Jesus always has a reason. Everything that he does has a reason behind it. And so much of what he did, he was communicating with what he was doing. Now, a horse, man, a horse, that communicates power, military conquest. When a king or emperor entered into town that he had conquered, he'd always be riding a horse. But a donkey? That communicates humility. And this being a colt, it's probably a full-grown colt, but had not yet been trained, but had never been ridden on. And so in a sense, Jesus is, is saying that he's doing something that no previous king had ever done. He's absolutely unique in the way he is offering himself. But a donkey also communicated peace. It was a symbol for peace. 
And so he enters Jerusalem as this unique king offering something no other emperor had ever offered and offering it, offering peace. This is also a fulfillment of a prophecy that was made about him in, in the, by the prophet Zechariah. So hundreds of years before this, Prophesiah said, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, the humility, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Well, now this is fulfilled prophecy, and there certainly would have been people as Jesus came into the city, people that were aware of this prophecy, and that would have meant something to them. They would have associated it right away. But at the same time, I mean, this, isn't, this is a letdown for Jerusalem because that's not the kind of king that they were looking for. They, they were looking for someone that would signify military might, someone that would show prestige in the world, power over their enemies because they hated their enemies. I mean, who wants a king on a donkey? And the problem that we actually see in Palm Sunday and how it speaks to us is that they wanted Jesus to be something other than who Jesus really was. We saw this last week. Remember when Jesus sent the message back to John the Baptist that blessed is he who is not offended by me. It's not offended by who I really am and what I'm actually offering rather than what they've contrived in their own imagination, what they want me to be. That was, that was the problem with all of Jerusalem. I mean, he's not what they want their Messiah to be. And not really what most people want today. What most people want Jesus to be. He is not what most people would want him to be. I mean, we want a God who fits our plan, who feeds our emotions, who blesses our days and endorses our politics. And Jesus never fits in the box that we create for him. Continue in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus. But then it says, and they threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. Now, why would this be? Why, why would they throw their cloaks on the donkey? And it could possibly be just because the, the colt didn't have a saddle. It hadn't been trained yet. And so putting a saddle, I'm not even sure what the saddles look like in the ancient world. I guess I should have researched that. But perhaps it was he couldn't have a saddle on him yet because he hadn't been trained but even then, just Jesus getting on an untrained colt, that's a miracle in and of itself. That it would not have, that would have allowed, the colt would have allowed for that. But they put cloaks. And I would think, okay, maybe it's just to protect Jesus from the sweaty colt or so that he didn't get dirty from the donkey. But then we see repeated in the next verse. Look at verse 8. It says, and many spread their cloaks on the road. So this is as he's coming into town. Now Mark kind of, Mark, he was very efficient with his words. He rarely told the whole story, gave a ton of details. We read the other gospel writers and they add more in it. That's the beauty of the gospels because we get all these vantage points from different witnesses that aren't saying things that are in opposition to each other, but they're adding some details that helps us to get the whole picture. But Mark, he just kind of gets right to it. They put the cloak on the donkey and Jesus sat on it. Then he goes into town. And as he's going into town, people spread their cloaks on the road. Okay, here again, we have cloaks. But why? Why would they... It seems a little foolish, doesn't it? Because it's not even Jesus who is walking, you know, if they're saying, well, we're going to protect you from having to walk on the actual road. I don't think so. You've been doing that all the way from Jer Jericho just that very day. 
So why would they do that? In, in fact, Jesus himself wasn't even walking on the road. He was on the donkey that was walking on the road. Actually, this was a fairly common practice that we read in ancient history. It's called lectisternium. And I wanted to say that just so you could see how intelligent I am, that I know these things. But you also probably saw me looking down because I, I wouldn't have been able to have remembered it if I hadn't read it off my page here. But lectisternium, it, it actually was a pagan practice that a couple of hundred years before this, this was practiced among pagans. And it was a way that they would demonstrate that they're welcoming a new God into their community. And so they would bring their couches and furniture from their house out onto the street. And they would take their cloaks, that's their outer cloak. And they would throw it out on the street in a sense saying, you come and, and come on into our community and we're welcoming you. And it was a way to say that, that you are needed and wanted. We need you and we want you. Well, then it switched over to emperors because Augustus was de declared himself a god. And so whenever Augustus entered into a town, they did this same practice, this lectisternium. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Lectisternium. Now, I won't have you all say that together. But so now the emperors were doing this, and it was a way for them to be able to show their prestige that they indeed, and, and these people were then also saying, hey, you're needed and wanted. We need you. We want you. Now they're doing this with Jesus, sending his message to Jesus. We need you. We want you. The problem is what they thought they needed and wanted wasn't what Jesus was offering. I want, I want God not to submit myself to him and fall into his plan. I mean, I don't have faith that his agenda is better than mine. I mean, forget that. I, I want God to overthrow my obstacles, to prosper my ways, to bolster my happiness. I want God to be there for me. And it was Jerusalem then, and it's many of us now. So there sits Jesus. He's on this donkey. He's surveying the crowds. He sees a spark of hope in their eyes. And, and many of these people, they really want a king. They, they do want him, and they mean it. I mean, they've laid their cloaks down, and he loves to see the hope in their eyes. I mean, they've been hopeless for so long. And for this place... Now, to feel hope, I mean, it, it is emotional, and, and it was celebratory with Jesus coming in, and yet it pains him to think most want him for their reasons, not his. Does that pain stir in him when he sees you? Look at verse 8. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Leafy branches. This is where the palm branches come in. I know it says leafy branches. It doesn't say palm tree branches. But John clarifies it. And when John talks about this, he says that they cut palm branches and used those. So that's the kind of leafy branch that it was. And, and why? Why a palm branch? Well, actually, palm trees were valued. And the palm branches symbolized Great joy. Some of it came from because being in an arid region, that in the desert, when you see the palm trees, that meant there's an oasis. There's a source of water where you can grow some things and you can get water for yourself. And so it creates some joy and celebration. So we see it in a lot of artwork. And we also find it minted on coins. It associated joy, celebration, a bit of a party atmosphere. And historians tell us that the custom of waving the palm branches was something that, again, they did to celebrate royalty. 
And so here, in fact, part of their statement is that this Jesus, the son of David, that meant he was from this royal line. They believed him to be the Messiah. And it's interesting that this was not just something that took place then, though it did take place then, but this is a precursor to something that's going to happen in the future. Because John, who was here, John would later, when he was on the Isle of Patmos and wrote the book of Revelation and prophesied of the future days, he wrote this in Revelation 7. He said, therefore, before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which I love this in and of itself. These are those who are worshiping God. This great multitude from people around the world and all different kinds of backgrounds, every ethnicity. And, and, and John, you think about this. If you are attached to Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, you've believed on his death for you, his resurrection, and you've put your faith and, and trust and hope for your forgiveness of sins in him, that means you're part of this multitude. I mean, what a cool thought. John was seeing you in this multitude. And continues, and he says, I saw this multitude standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So we see the palm branches once again. I love this. Palm Sunday isn't just a parade we remember. It's a party we practice for. So some of our celebration on this Palm Sunday weekend is about what's going to transpire in the future. We're practicing for this party in the future. Now this original Palm Sunday, in many ways it was celebrated under false pretense because they thought this Messiah was now going to deliver them from Rome. But this one, this one in the future, this one will be a celebration of truth. All right, we look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, you see this, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Well, there again, there's another one of those churchy words. And we don't, but this was a common word for them back then. Hosanna, it simply means save us. So what they were shouting was, save us, save us. And that's where blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's, he's coming in the name of Yahweh in order to save us. And that's what they were shouting. And then verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. The coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, save us in the highest. And so they're shouting, we want this. David was... The, during David's reign, this was the strongest and most prosperous the nation of Israel had ever been in all of their history, and they want it back. So that's what they're looking for Jesus to do. They want him to come back as being like David and bring them prosperity. They wanted this Jesus to deliver them, to save them from the oppression. But Jesus will offer something better. They wanted deliverance from earthly oppression. I mean, this is our greatest need, Jesus. Rome is taxing us into poverty, stealing our land, poisoning our customs. And God says, I see that, but I want more. He wants deliverance from eternal oppression. Our focus is on earthly wrongs, earthly oppression, but God's focus is on what's eternal because ultimately that's what's going to matter, not the here and now. And that's not to say that we should not work for justice today, that we should not feed those who are hungry and clothe people and house the poor. We do that with, through, both through scores of 
of global partners that we have around the world and we support them. But man, we do this locally as well. I mean, our church stocks hundreds of people's pantries every single week. So we do go for it in the here and now. We're sending kids in poverty-stricken areas to school. We feed and clothe and educate. But at the end of the day, God's heart is for their eternity above all else. I mean, if we take care of everybody's immediate temporal need, but we don't help them with their eternal destination, what have we done? No, God cares more about eternity, your eternity. This crowd wants destruction of their enemies. I mean, those Roman soldiers, they bully and abuse, they scare our kids and hurt our women. Hosanna from the Romans, save us from the Romans. But Jesus wants so much more. He wants destruction of sin. Because God knows us. He knows our homes. He knows that our sin is our greatest enemy. What's killing you isn't who or what you think it is. It's not that political party as corrupt as they may be. It's not that coworker or that in-law. What's really killing us is the sin that you and I run to. We fear so much the world and its ideologies. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't guard and teach our children. We should. But the greatest threat to our homes is our sin. That is what he came to destroy. Well, these people, they wanted prosperity. Just like our father David. We want the days of David when we were a superpower empire and a bolster. We want you to bolster the economy. But Jesus wants more. He wants eternity. Because you can be healthy and wealthy and comfortable and successful and still be far from God and far from heaven. Because when you think about it, this life is the closest to heaven that most people will ever be. Jesus came so that this life is the closest to hell that we will ever be. God wants more for you than you want for yourself. The original Palm Sunday was all about the disconnect between what people want and what God wants. And I think that's the case for some today. All right, look, uh, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything. So after he had come into Jerusalem, it wasn't far from where he entered. The gate that he entered in, the temple was right there. So then he goes into the temple and he looks around. And we find out, if we were to continue on reading this context, we were to find out that he does not like what he sees. And the first order of business, the very next morning, is going to tick a lot of people off as he confronts sin. Now, on this day, this Palm Sunday, the original one, the people waved the palm trees. They threw their cloaks down. They welcomed him in. But after Jesus' confrontation of sin, many rejected him. And I think even today, People pray a prayer, they sing in church, but that sin that is so attractive to them, when they get confronted about that sin, and when they come to realize what God thinks or what God says about whatever it is that is holding them, it becomes a very different story. Because I think a lot of people look to Jesus as essentially a, a get-out-of-hell-free card. He's, he's going to just get me out of hell, but as far as really knowing him, following him. 
That's like I've, I've in recent uh, year, the year last couple of years, I've traveled to some third world countries to, just to be with some of our global partners. And I've also brought some supplies. We've brought some Bibles, you know, when I say supplies, supplies that weren't welcome in the country, and we're not talking drugs, but things like uh, Bible study materials and medical supplies. And in all those cases, we knew that we were in danger of getting searched and that this was not something that was welcomed by the powers of that country. And so we carried, I, I would carry a letter with me. And I did get searched just a couple of weeks ago, about a month ago. I, this letter was written by someone that I didn't know, I didn't have a relationship with, but this person had wrote this letter explaining what this was about, and I was hoping that this is what's going to get me through security, even though I didn't really know this person. I, I think it's the same for a lot of people that Jesus is to them. They're hoping that Jesus is a letter that'll get them out of trouble. He's gonna, when, when it comes time, when I'm, when I'm standing at those pearly gates, then I... I I held on to Jesus. He's going to be that letter. But right now, I'm not really interested in devoting my life to him. And actually thinking through what it means to please him, to follow him, to know his word, to make some sacrifices, and to actually be devoted to Jesus. I mean, I don't want to be a fanatic. Well, Jesus isn't interested in that kind of a relationship. He's not going to be just a get-out-of-hell-free card. He wants so much more for you. Well, Palm Sunday calls us to the mat, and it asks us the question, who is Jesus to you? Is he a nice tradition that's good to have hanging around? Is he a good luck charm that you want to keep you out of trouble? Or maybe is your upgrade, kind of like your iPhone is fine, but they came out with a new model, a new iPhone, and hey, let's upgrade it. Maybe it's better. My life is going great. Boy, putting Jesus involved in this will just make it a little bit better. Who is he really to you? Because if Jesus were here in a local parade right now, the streets would be slammed. But not very many of them would be interested in devoting their lives to him. Are you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he your consultant? Whenever I have a do a house project, and right now I'm in the middle of a house project. So when I'm doing some things, I like to ask some other people that have done more of these and I'll ask some guys at church, what do you do about this? Or how do you handle this? I'll be at Menards and Home Depot, and I'll ask them there. I want to get their advice, but but I'm just getting their advice. It doesn't mean I have to do what they're telling me to do. Obedience isn't an issue here. It's just I'm just just consulting. I've actually been invited by some churches to do some consulting in churches that are struggling. And so I go, and I recognize this is a take-it-or-leave-it kind of a situation. They can listen to what I have to say, but they don't have to because I'm just a consultant. But that take it or leave it attitude is the way a lot of professing Christians think about Jesus. That's how they think about his lordship. Hey, I love what he says about love your neighbor as yourself and some of those beautiful things, but when it comes to being the husband God wants me to be or the wife that God wants me to be and what the Bible says or my sex life or a host of other things that we don't know we want to line up with what the Bible says and we're thinking I'll decide what I'm going to do about this because after all it's my life so it's my call in other words Jesus is just a consultant 
but what does Lord mean? I mean, what does Lord mean? If Jesus is Lord, what does that mean? We had a day, it was a Wednesday a couple of weeks ago, and there was a lot of stuff going on, so there was a lot of noise in the building, and people coming in and out of the offices, and both Junior and I were trying to work on some stuff to stay focused, and so we just, we headed out and went to the cigar lounge just to work on a computer there, and this guy comes in, and he's very boisterous and kind of loud, and and he's talking church stuff, and come to find out, and he says something about the, this guy said, I'm sorry, Reverend, I haven't been to your church, and so I'm thinking, okay, this guy's a pastor. He sits down, and I said, you're a pastor? I want to find out, you know, and he said, yeah. I said, what church? And he tells me the name of the church, and then he, he looks over at Junior, who's sitting next to me, and you know, long hair and tattoos, and he's thinking, he better say this. He goes, but we are not conservative. We are very progressive. We welcome anyone and anything, and if people don't like it, they can just stay away. (laughs) And I'm thinking, well, Jesus would. Because Jesus was not afraid to strongly oppose sin, and he did. And he he wasn't open-minded when it came to behaviors that destroy people's lives. He confronted sin. Now, he's okay with you consulting him on a lot of things but not in the areas where he has made his expectations clear, his values, his principles, where that has been laid out in scripture. Those are not suggestions. So who is Jesus to you? Is he your Lord? Or is he just a consultant? Or possibly is Jesus your co-signer? A co-signer is one who approves and becomes the safety net. And sometimes it's, it's essentially being a, looking to Jesus as being your co-signer. It's like you decide how you want to live and what you want to do, but then you figure out a way to say, this is what God approves, or God told me to do this, or this is what, this is what God... And sometimes they'll, they'll do some real interpretive gymnastics to try to force their, what they want to do onto Scripture anyway. And my, my first house, when I first bought a house, I, I actually couldn't afford to buy a house all I could afford to do was buy a lot and then buy the materials for a house. And so I took out a construction loan and just bought the lot and bought the materials. Didn't know how to build anything, but I kind of faked my way through it. But I, I honestly, I didn't even have the money to get that construction loan. And so my dad co-signed for me. And now once we got, you know, it took me a year to build the thing. So after that time, I had a year's worth of making payments and the bank says, okay, you're good to go on your own. But I had to have my dad co-sign. Now, my, my dad was my co-signer, but he had nothing to do with the design of the house, the location, the colors, the materials. He just basically said, okay, I, I think he can do this. And if he doesn't, then I'll pay for whatever he doesn't pay. And I could do as I please, but if I could make a payment, he took over. And people think of God this way. I'm going to do what I want. Live as I please, and if things go wrong, he'll be there to back me up, bail me out, clean up my mess. Like the woman sitting in my office trying to convince me that God was good with her divorcing her husband, and it was God that brought along this other man that she was having an affair with, because God wants me to be happy. And I I said, well, he is concerned with your happiness, but not at the expense of your holiness. She left her church and went to another, and then when that new relationship fell fell apart. She left that church because now God had let her down. He didn't bail her out of the mess that she created. 
Now, sometimes God in his mercy, he rescues us from messes that we create ourselves. And I'm glad that he does. But normally that takes the humility to own our own mess and not blame it on him. But a lot of people, they they go ahead and make their own plans without giving a thought to biblical principles or advice from wise, godly people. And they try to drag God into it as a co-signer. And God says, I'm not going to sign off on that. You can do your own thing. You can make your own plans. That's your call. But don't call me Lord then. I didn't come to surrender my life so that I could co-sign yours. He won't be the God you've created in your own imagination, going along with whatever you fancy. He'll be the God he's revealed himself as in his word, and he'll be Lord, but he won't be our co-signer. It's like my kids were little. Whenever they would be reprimanded either by me or Linda, they would go to the other one and expect to be loved and cuddled and hugged. And, and we, we wouldn't do that. We, it was, we had, we had a, an agreement with us that if I was the one that disciplined, then I'm the first one to give love and hugs. They wouldn't, and mom would not. She would say, no, go to your dad. Or if they came to me after getting in trouble with mom, I would just walk them back over to mom and said, you sit on mom's lap for a little bit. And because we wanted them to know, no, we're on the same page. I'm, my, grand, I, my oldest granddaughter, when she was two, Nicole got after her for something and she got mad and she grabbed a hold of daddy's hand and she says, let's get out of here, dad. <laughs> like, like he's going to follow a two-year-old out the door. Sadly, some parents follow with that stuff. But people are good with the religion thing until they're confronted with God's word about something. Anti-biblical views or values or sinful behavior. And it's like, what? The Bible says that? The church thinks that? Come on, Jesus. Let's you and me get out of here. We'll go do our own thing. But Jesus isn't interested in cuddling with someone who is rejecting his word or rejecting his people. He won't just be your consultant and he won't be your co-signer. Is he your king? By king, that means full acknowledgement that he knows best His word is your law, and he's not here for just advice or a safety net, but for you to belong to him and to surrender to him. We all know if you had kids or have kids or you've been around kids, you know this, that sometimes kids, they go through the stage where they just want to do everything themselves, and some more so than others and actually never grow out of it. Well, this was Junior. And man, I mean, so many stories of this, but I remember when he was about two and in the, we were doing a construction project or building a, our first church and, and in the gravel parking lot, he was in the car with his grandpa, he called him Boppy and sit, sitting on grandpa's lap. And so grandpa was going to drive him just a little bit with him on his lap in the, not on the street, but just in the, on the gravel parking lot before you get all worried about that. But then as he's kind of driving forward a little bit, he starts pushing grandpa's hands away, saying, no, Bobby, no, Bobby, no, Bobby. He wanted to do it. He wanted to drive all by himself. Was just, and that just never ended. When we started building, this is the house I, I mentioned earlier. We started building his house. And he would always come out to meet with me on the construction site. And, and I would do stuff with him. I even took him up on the roof. And I know that's like, what? Are you crazy? Well, just remember that the parents who raised the greatest generation did that stuff all the time helicopter parents raised the snowflake generation. So I think I was in good company with that. But I, I showed him, you know, I did some siding stuff and I helped him, you know, saw some stuff. But every time he did anything, 
He would always say, I want to do, I want to do, and push my hands away. At one point, we were painting. And, he's, and he starts pushing me away, saying, no, I, I paint, I paint. He wanted to do the, 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 the whole wall by himself. And I just said, stop, you, you can't really do it yourself. You don't really know how. You don't have the dexterity for it. And I'm not going to be your painting consultant. I'm not sure if I use those exact words, but something like that. And I'm not going to clean up the mess that he was right then dripping all over the ground. You're going to make a mess, and I'm not going to co-sign an ugly mess. You can do it with me, and I'll help you, but I'm in charge. And I wonder who God today wants to say, stop. I didn't go to the cross and come back from the dead for you to just, to just for me to watch you live your life the way you want to. I didn't die so that I could advise you, co-sign your views and opinions, and just give into your way. Let go. Surrender. Because I'm either king to you, or I'm nothing. There's no in-between. So what? I want you to give some thought to this. Who is Jesus to you? And be honest. Who's he been? Have you viewed him as just someone to come alongside and give you advice? Is that what the scripture's been? Advisory? Do you really work hard to figure out what does God think about this? Or is it kind of a take it or leave it thing? You've been trying to make him your co-signer that you come up with your own views and you think the way you want to think and then you try to force that upon scripture or try to get God to agree with you by making all kinds of claims or using scripture in a way that it was never intended. Or God told me to do this. Are you trying to just get him to co-sign what you want, the way you want to live? Or is he really king? Is he Lord? He's in charge. And you know this obligation to submit yourself completely to him. I'm just going to give you some time. If you want to bow your heads and pray or if you want to just stare at the screen but I want you to force yourself now to give this some time and talk to him who has Jesus been to you and from here on out who is he going to be to you